Howdy. Howdy. Glad to have you all here this morning. Um, we are going to be in Acts chapter 3, so if you've got a Bible, you may want to go ahead and get there. All right, Acts chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you that in Jesus Christ we have life. That it's through him and for him that we're created. And in him we know that we have forgiveness of our sins and life everlasting. Father, we praise you because you are kind and gracious, even in our sin. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you would help us to understand it. Often our minds are cloudy. We pray that you would open up our minds, illuminate them, that we might know what it is that your word says. Uh, Father, often our hearts are rebellious or fearful or doubting. We pray you would remove those things from our hearts and encourage us to trust you, and to obey you, and then move in our bodies, in our hands, our feet, through our lips, that we would proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, and as we walk throughout our days, we would spend our days honoring you, and participating in your kingdom, and pursuing your values. We thank you, God, for this time, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. This past summer, a man named Aaron Collins passed away. He was a young man, only 29 years old. And when he died, he left a will for his family that had just a few items in the will. Uh, The first one was, uh, go into my bank account. If I've got any money left, pay my parents back for whatever I owe them. Second one was, uh, do something nice for a homeless person. The third request was, go out to dinner and leave a really big tip. And he said, I'm not talking about a 25% tip. What I mean is go out for pizza and leave the waitress a $500 tip. Uh, So his family took that literally, uh, but the problem was that Aaron didn't have any money left when he died after the funeral expenses. So they decided to raise money to fulfill his last wish. They set up a website, aaroncollins.org, and began uh, soliciting donations to be able to give out these big tips. And uh, within a week, they got the first $500 that they needed. So they went to a pizza place at lunchtime, sat down and ate. And at the end of the meal, Aaron's brother said to the waitress, can you come over here for a minute? began to explain to her, uh, my brother died back in July, and she said, oh, I'm sorry, and you can tell she's thinking, uh, I've got a lot of work to do. I don't want to get into this conversation. And he said, his last wish was that we go out for pizza and we leave a $500 tip. So here you go. 
And she looks at it and she goes, wait, what? Here you go. This is yours. No, 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 no. That can't be mine. She goes, yes, it is. $500 tip. She starts to cry. She says, I can't believe this. I'm going to tell this story for the rest of my life. It was an amazing moment for her as well as for them. Uh, people kept donating, by the way. And as of last count, they had raised over $60,000 to do the same thing throughout Kentucky for over 100 waiters and waitresses at pizza restaurants. Now, I don't know if you've ever waited tables or worked any kind of service job, but that's not your typical experience when you work that kind of job, is it? Uh, you get up in the morning, uh, you go to that job knowing you're going to stand on your feet all day, and at best, people will treat you indifferently. They might not insult you before they leave, right? I've waited tables. I've also worked at grocery stores and fast food restaurants and had all kinds of experiences. Never had that one where somebody gave me hundreds of dollars for a tip. When I was at the grocery store, I did have a man who was unhappy with the way I bagged his groceries. He drove them all the way home, realized he didn't like it, drove all the way back to bring in the offending bag and lecture me about how I had done it wrong, right? That's typically what you expect. At best, you hope to make it through the day with your minimum wage job and go home and be able to pay a few bills or buy a little food or go out with some friends. What you don't expect is to show up and have someone give you hundreds or thousands of dollars. And so these waiters and waitresses, if you go to the website, aaroncollins.org, you can see all the videos and they're just stunned by this generosity because they walked in expecting something pretty small and their expectations are raised through the roof. And the reason I share that is because the passage we're looking at this morning is a passage in which a man going about his normal routine, has his expectations lifted beyond what he could have hoped. Every day, same time, same place, he expects the same things. And yet what happens in this passage is God steps into his life and makes him aware that through Jesus Christ, God is active in history. And so although he has these expectations for his life, God takes those and turns them upside down, shakes them around and says, I'm going to give you something a whole lot better than what you expect. It's not what you asked for. It's not what you hoped for. It's better. Because the purpose of your life now that Jesus has stepped into history is for you to be a living proclamation of the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. And because of that, God's power is on the loose. And the people around him are amazed as well, going about their normal routine, not really expecting God to act. They see him act in amazing ways. My guess is that everybody sitting in this room this morning has expectations for his or her life. Maybe your expectation before you got here, your hope, your dream for your life was to be an Aggie. And that expectation uh, hopefully has been fulfilled. For some of you, you're still working toward that, but you go, if, if that can happen in my life, my life will be complete. For some of you, it is, uh, there's a person in this room or in another room that you say, if that person were in my life in a romantic way, my life would be fulfilled. Right? I remember feeling that way at times. You think, that's it, right? If I could just get along with my parents, if they would just stop calling me and asking about my grades on the first week of school, things would be great, right? If I could just get into the right grad school, if I could just have this, and you've got these expectations and plans for your life, what we're gonna see in this passage is God may take those dreams you have and say, nope, I've got something different. Because what I want at the center of your life 
is not some man-made dream. What I want at the center of your life is Jesus Christ. And I want you, whatever you do, to say the purpose of my life is to proclaim to the world that Jesus has risen from the dead. And because he's alive, we cannot live, act, talk, think the same. And that defines our existence. And we're going to see that kind of transformation happen with this man in this passage, with the people around him, and God willing, with you and me. Look at Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. All right, let me set this uh, passage up for you just a little bit. All right, here's a guy sitting at the beautiful gate of the temple. This is one of the largest and most ornate gates in Herod's temple, all right? And as, as people are walking up, This man is asking for alms. There were two hours for prayer during the day, one in the morning, one in the late afternoon, and this is around three o'clock. People are coming up. They're probably bringing animals to be sacrificed. They're planning to pray for the kingdom. It's a real crowded time. It would be as if uh, you wanted to earn some extra money, and so you stand in front of Kyle Field right as people are coming up for the game saying, I know that I can sell whatever trinket it is I have at this time because this is the most crowded things are ever going to be. Everybody's here. And so this guy, every day someone comes and lays him in front of this gate because he can't walk, sets him there to beg for money. And the people who come up are motivated either by their love for God or by their guilt or their need to do something right. They're motivated to toss him a few coins. And that's what he does. That's his expectation for his day. It's a relatively small one. Just need a few bucks. A couple of years ago, my wife and I decided that we were going to try to eat healthier. And I'm not a person who typically has a real sweet tooth. I don't eat a lot of Twinkies or Ding Dongs or things like that. Uh, But what I do like, what my vices are Tostitos, uh, Doritos, Fritos, anything named Itos. That's my vice. All right. I love them. Uh, They're salty. They're delicious. They're wonderful. And so uh, I could eat them. They were kind of the baseline of my diet, right? It was like broccoli, and Tostitos, you know, that kind of thing, or uh, macaroni and cheese with Tostitos, you know, and everything fit into one of two categories, chips or everything else. But as we began to move into eating healthy for a while, we set those things aside. And all of a sudden I found that throughout the day, all of my desires crystallized into wanting a few chips. And so I would sit at my desk thinking, how can I make this happen for me and not blow this whole diet thing? You know, so I'd maybe grab a little bit of lettuce and dip it into some salsa, see if that would work. And it never did, never satisfied it. You know, I would eat some almonds thinking maybe they'd be salty enough. And uh, my wife always bought unsalted ones. And so I'd be like, drat, you know, and throw them on the desk or whatever. (laughs) Go home, talking to my kids. And what'd you do at school today? And all I'm thinking is I hope that they made chips at school and they brought them home (laughs) for me. Okay everything that I thought about was how can I get my hands on these? That's a small hope, little dreams for my life, right? That's where this guy is. He's sitting at the temple and he says, all I want is a few bucks. Just give me a few bucks. And in fact, we find that he doesn't even look at people in the eye anymore. Because as Peter and John walk up, he asks to receive alms. And we're going to see the first thing they say is look at us. He's looking at the ground. He says, just just give me a few dollars. 
I'll be happy. My guess is that all of us find ourselves in a place from time to time where all of our hopes and dreams revolve around something. And it's not that those hopes and dreams are wrong. It's just that they're insufficient. Because we say, you know, what I really need is a boyfriend or girlfriend. What I really need before I get out of this place is a ring. What I really need is the right job. And I'm afraid I won't get it. Right grad school. I'm afraid I won't get in. What I really need is this or this. And our desires crystallize around these expectations that are important to us but are much less than what God wants for us. Because what God wants for us is to live a life of eternal impact. And so when God steps into this man's life, he's going to say, you know what? Your desires are too small. They're too small. It's not that they're wrong. It's just that your hopes are misplaced. And you're looking for fulfillment in something other than the power of God in Jesus Christ. So watch what happens. He's got these small expectations. Peter and John step up. Peter directed his gaze at him as did John and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All right, so this man's sitting there and people come by and they just flip coins, right? You've seen this happen in the subway. If you've gone to a big city or you're walking along downtown, there are often beggars there. And sometimes people will reach in and just toss a few coins and they don't look at them. The beggar doesn't look at the person. That's what's going on here. So Peter walks up and he recognizes something about this guy, that what this guy really needs is not money, but he needs to be seen. And so Peter and John stop. They look at him and they say, look at us. Because this man approaches his relationships from a transactional point of view, right? You give me a few dollars, I'll alleviate your guilt. You give me a few dollars, I'll let you know you're in good with God. Sometimes we approach our relationships that way as well, don't we? I'll post something funny on Facebook, you give me blue thumbs, right? (laughs) I'll tweet something really cool. You tweet, LOL, I'll be happy, you'll be happy. It's all good, right? We approach our relationships from that standpoint, don't we? It's a little disconcerting at times then to actually be seen. I don't know if you've ever had somebody stare at you. It's extremely disconcerting. I can remember being on a subway in New York City one day when we were visiting and there's a guy just, right? And so you look over and you think, I'll just smile at him, maybe that'll satisfy whatever it is he's trying to figure out. So you smile at him and he's still looking at you. You turn away, you pretend you don't see him, but you can feel his eyes boring into the side of your head, right? I actually saw a television show not too long ago where they did an experiment in an auto shop and they said, here's what we want everybody to do. They got a whole bunch of people that were actors and one guy who didn't know what was going on and, uh, they, they were all talking and chatting, and then somebody came in to this, uh, the real customer, they handed them a coupon, said, here you go, you get 40% off your service today. Gave it to this guy, but not any of the actors, and walked out. All of the actors decided to just stare him down, right? Imagine sitting there while eight people just look at you 
And he goes, what, what, what? What's going on? He laughs it off. He can't laugh. Finally, he had to get up and leave. Everybody they put in that situation said, I can't do this, right? I got to leave. It's unnerving to be really seen. And Peter and John look at this man as if to say, you need something deeper than what you're asking for. Look at us. So the man looks at them in the face. And Peter begins by saying, I don't have any silver or gold. And I can envision the man thinking, thanks a lot. You stopped my routine. Ten people have gone by. It's kind of creepy. You're staring at me and you don't have anything to give me. He says, but what I do have, now I give to you. He reaches down, he grabs the man, says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. Oh, okay. Then the guy tests his legs and it says immediately, his feet and ankles are strong. He leapt to his feet. He runs into the temple with Peter and John and he begins dancing around, praising God and leaping around. Now, it helps to have some context here culturally to know that this man had never, ever, ever been in the temple. You know why? He couldn't go in. Leviticus 21 says nobody who's lame, nobody with a defect, nobody with a blemish can go into the temple. So here's this man from a societal point of view his whole life. He is an outcast from the people. He is separated from God. And in a moment, he leaps to his feet. How long did it take you to walk? For most of you, probably around a year. Some of you uh, excelled and you started doing it at nine or 10 months. Some of you a little slow, maybe 15, 16 months. But it was a process, wasn't it? You would pull up on a little table and your parents would clap. Yeah, yeah, go. And they'd reach out and try to get you to let go of that table. And at first you'd say, I like holding on. They would coax you out and you'd let go. You'd fall down. They would laugh. You would cry, right? <laughs> and you'd get up and you'd try it again. And over the course of months, your legs would get stronger until finally you could walk a little bit and wobbly. You ever watch a two-year-old walk? They're wobbly. They don't go straight. They run flat-footed, don't they? And it's a while till you learn how to do that. This guy, in a moment, never having walked before, stands up. And he's not just walking. He's running. He's leaping. He's dancing. And what God says to this man is, you don't need money. You need me. And it's a visible, living sign of the fact that the kingdom of God is at hand through Jesus Christ. The reason I say that is because this was prophesied. Isaiah chapter 35. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arava. That's a desert. In other words, when when the Messiah comes, the lame will get up and they will leap for joy. This is one man, if you listen to what Jesus is doing and you pay attention to what he's doing in the world, Peter's going to tell us in a few minutes, this could be every lame person. And one day, every lame person connected to Jesus Christ will stand up and walk. Every blind person will see, every deaf person will hear. So God says, your desires are too small. You can cling to what you think you want for your life. And it'll be fine. You might be comfortable, you might be happy, but it won't be eternal. Because God says, if you want to have an eternally significant life, you might have to drop your plans, come before God in full submission and say, what do you want from me? Where do you want me to go? 
and it might be radically different from what you've planned. It might not. But we take the attitude of saying, God, my purpose is not to fulfill my plans, but to glorify Jesus Christ. There's a man named Adoniram Judson, lived back in the late 1700s, early 1800s. He was born to a minister's family. His dad was a man of letters, a really intellectual guy, smart man who had all of these dreams and ambitions for his son. His son showed promise academically at a very young age. And so he thought, my son's going to go on and be a great professor or maybe even a great politician and be president of the United States or a great minister and thousands will flock to hear him. My son's going to be this amazing man. And all through his childhood, Adoniram Judson was instilled with this sense of self-importance and you are going to be great. And yet as he reached 18, 19, 20, he began to sense that God had something different for his life. Interestingly, something even greater, but different. God called him in the early 1800s to go out from the United States, from Massachusetts as a missionary. That was a big deal back then. In fact, he was one of the very first missionaries. Nobody had gone before. One of the very first to go from North America. He went to Burma, it's now known as Myanmar, one of the uh, countries where the gospel had not yet been known. He shared the gospel for several decades, lived and died in that country. And yet after him, thousands of missionaries, literally tens of thousands of missionaries in the next hundred years, followed him because of his willingness to say, I will go where God leads. Now, it may not be that God is calling you to be a missionary or a pastor or whatever it is, but it may be that God is asking you in whatever vocation he directs you toward to say, I keep my plans and dreams open. For some of you, if I told you this morning that the major you are in will have nothing to do with your career, you'd burst into tears. I would have when I was was starting college because I was an engineering major. Why am I going through all this pain if I'm not going to be an engineer? Some of you, if I said the person you're dating or the person you're interested in will not be the one you're married to, you'd get angry with me. Yet God has a plan that might be better than yours. And that's what happens with this man. It's a God-sized intervention in his life. All right, and the result is there's this widespread amazement surrounding what happens with this man. He's leaping, he's dancing in the temple. He has uh, believed that Jesus Christ has the power to heal him and he jumps up, he starts leaping through the temple. Verse nine, all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. These people had showed up twice a day, every day to pray. And they're praying for the kingdom of God. And in fact, they're bringing sacrifices to take care of their sin, believing that by doing so, uh, God will bless them and establish his kingdom. They're praying for the Messiah, but not really believing that he's here. And as they're doing this, imagine they're praying, they're watching the priests do these sacrifices. Here comes this man dancing along in front of them. And they look up, they're like, that doesn't happen all the time. And then they look closely and they go, that's that guy. That guy that sat there for decades at the temple. I just tossed him a few coins and there he goes. And they're astounded and they rush to Peter and John because they weren't ready to be surprised by the work of God. Two or three years ago, 
I was driving to work on my normal route, and I was driving down Rio Grande Drive here in College Station. And every day I would drive down this road, turn at the same places, take the same route, get to my office, begin my work. But uh, on this particular day, I'm driving down the road, and I kind of glance out my window, and I glance back, and I thought, that was a goat. And I looked over, and there was a goat walking down the street. And uh, it wasn't just that there was a goat. There was nobody with him. Uh, his beard and fur were partially dyed blue as if somebody had taken him and given him like a little makeover. I look over again. He looks over at me like saying, what's up? I'm a goat, right? And then he keeps, <laughs> keeps going down the road. And I, I'm driving and I thought, okay, that did not just happen. Right? I get to the office and I'm thinking, if that really was a goat, because I really was questioning myself at this point. I thought maybe, maybe it was a big dog, right? Maybe I just ate something weird, you know? And so I get to the office and I thought, if that's really a goat, I need to call animal control because they need to take care of this. So I call them and I, I'm, as it's ringing, I'm thinking, what does one say? You know, and they pick up the phone and I said, yes, uh, this sounds really weird, but I just saw a goat walking down Rio Grande in South College Station and the lady laughs and she goes, that, that does sound weird. But she goes, hold on just a second. She comes back a minute later. She goes, was it a blue goat with little horns and white fur behind it? And I said, that's the goat. <laughs> right? She said, all right, we're on it. And I don't know. How, they may probably put him in goat jail or something, you know, or something. I don't know. They went and they got him. But I got to the office. I sat down at a staff meeting and I said to the rest of the staff that was there, you'll never believe what happened. And it became this metaphor, in a sense, for that semester of uh, where is God going to show you a goat today? Because we're so unaccustomed to being surprised by the work of God. And that's where these men and women at the temple are. They're praying for God to work, but they don't really believe that he will. And when it happens, they're astounded. And that's what happens when a man or a woman says, I'm going to submit my plans, my dreams to Jesus Christ. I'll take a harder path if it means he'll be exalted. I'll choose to be joyful when others complain. I'll choose to be pure when others are impure. I'll choose to spend time reading his word when others spend time in other activities. And I submit my plans and expectations to God. I watch him move. And the world around says, I I don't know what's going on with that person. Maybe even I don't know if I like it, but something is at work. And they're drawn to the work of God. That's the kind of light that we want to be. Because Jesus Christ, having stepped into history, has rearranged our priorities. And nothing ever will be the same. And so Peter stands up and he exhorts these men and women. And he says, you're called now to participate in God's plan. Look at verse 12. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. 
But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. All right, we'll stop there. Peter stands up and he says this, this is why this has happened, not because we made the guy walk, but because God is here, God is active. The Jesus that you killed has risen again. I love that, you killed the author of life, but you know what, God raised him back from the dead. And he's here and he's calling you to make a decision. Will you be a part of his kingdom or will you keep doing your own thing? And for these men and women in this day and age, this this sermon, by the way, is very similar to the one in chapter two that we looked at last week. For these men and women in this day and age, what Peter is saying is this. Jesus came to be your king, to reign in Jerusalem over this nation and over the whole world. But you killed him. But good news, he rose again. If you change your mind and your heart and your attitude toward him, God will come. He'll bring that kingdom that was promised through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the prophets. So get on board with his plan. Look to Jesus because he's alive and through his spirit, he's active. Now the application is a little different perhaps for you and me because we're Gentiles. We don't live in Israel. We don't live in the first century. The gospel has now been extended out to all the world because this first generation rejected their Messiah. One day, that kingdom will come. One day, it will be established. And what we're called to do in the meanwhile is proclaim the name of Jesus so that all the nations can hear, all of the world can know that in him, we have eternal life. In him, we have meaning. In him, we have relationship with God. That's why we're here. And so this passage says, whatever your plans are, whatever your dreams are, whatever school you end up going to, whatever job you take, whomever you marry, the purpose and the center of your life is to say, I want my plans and expectations to conform to God's because I want to be a vessel and a shining light so all the world can see him and know him. And that means as I engage in relationships, I do so to demonstrate the love of God through Jesus Christ. Even as Ephesians 5 says, if I get married, the purpose of my marriage is not to please myself, but to make Jesus known. At my work, I work as unto the Lord, as Colossians 3 says. So people will see what it looks like to submit to God and know him. So people will see the character of Jesus Christ. That's my purpose in my life. And so God may take your plans and expectations and shake them around because he wants to place you somewhere where you can do that most effectively. From time to time, uh, people will come up intrigued by the fact that I was a mechanical engineering major and now I'm a pastor. Uh, That's an interesting transformation in my life. I came here to A&M, signed up for mechanical engineering because my plan was to go through four years of school and then go to law school and be a patent lawyer. Uh, My grandfather was a judge. There were other lawyers and judges in my family. And there was this push uh, from my parents to do a technical program. And I got here and I began that process and a couple of things happened. One, I didn't like my classes. Another was I wasn't as good at them as I thought I would be. And then another was, I I just began to sense as I participated in what God was doing, that God was moving me in a different direction. Didn't know what it was my freshman year. 
by my sophomore year, after talking to some people, after praying, began to sense, you know, I think God is moving me toward vocational ministry. That seems to be where my desires are. That seems to be where my gifts are. That seems to be where he's directing me. And yet I was still afraid, mostly to go tell my dad that I wasn't going to be an engineer. And I remember thinking about that conversation and praying about that conversation and approaching him. And I said, Dad, I think that I'm headed in a different direction. And I remember him saying, yeah, I'm not surprised. I didn't think you were going to be an engineer. I expected that you were headed toward ministry. I really just wanted you to get that degree in case you changed your mind, you could still get a job. But he said, you go where the Lord is leading you. And there was this freedom in that conversation. Now, not everybody's parents would have reacted that way, I know. But it didn't matter to me how he reacted because I thought, if I don't make a decision now to conform to where God is leading me, I think I'll do fine. I'll be an okay engineer. I doubt I'll spend every day weeping and gnashing my teeth. I don't think that I'll be a miserable old man. But I won't be in the center of what I sense God is directing me toward. And I don't know what God is calling you to do. But I do know that he's calling you to participate in his kingdom in whatever career he moves you toward, in whatever major, every day, to say the purpose of my life is to proclaim him. And so as he turns your plans and expectations around, he says, no, I don't have that for you. I've got this. The question is, will you resist or will you let God shape your plans and expectations? Because God is moving through Jesus Christ and calling you to be a part of what he's doing. Uh, We're going to sing some songs as we close and we're going to respond in worship. And as we do, spend some time in your heart before the Lord and ask this. Will you let God shape your plans and expectations for your life? Or will you cling to your own plans and expectations thinking that they're better? What is it that God might be calling you to do right now that is hard, scary, difficult, but that you know, I need to do this in order to have an eternal impact for him? and his kingdom. Father, we do come before you tonight wanting to worship your name, to bless you each day. Father, by the way that we live, by the things that we say and do, but most of all, uh, by our trust in Jesus Christ, by our reliance upon your spirit, recognizing that in ourselves we are sinful, weak, and unable to do anything. And so we ask you to empower us for your service. We ask you to give us the strength to make hard choices when necessary, to follow your plans instead of our own. Father, allow us to seek your will this week in the relationships and the duties and tasks that you've called us to. We thank you, God. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful week.